Good morning, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Got a photo for you. Start off with a question. What would you pay for this? Some of you may remember seeing this in the news. In 2019, Italian artist Maurizio Catalan, sorry, I butchered that name probably. He bought this banana at a supermarket. He went to an auction, taped it to a wall, and uh, watched as the bidding went up and up, eventually selling for $120,000. Some of you are like, where do I get some of that banana action at? I got bananas at home. What about this one? Check this out. Titled First 5,000 Days, this became famous as a part of the non-fungible token, also called NFT artwork surge earlier this year. If you've never heard of NFTs, Lord bless you. You probably haven't missed out on a lot, but digital artwork and digital tokens have been, be, have been sold, ownership of digital artwork, meaning you don't get an actual thing to hang in your house, but you get to own a, some, a digital something that other people can have copies of. And so this was auctioned off earlier in 2021 and eventually selling for $69,346,250. Again, digital ownership. Finally, what about this? How much would you pay for this? This was, uh, this was painted in the 1950s. It's titled either One Mint or Ornament 6. I'm not quite sure. I uh, read some, some uh, art, artist reviews from, from the time, and one art, art review art critic claimed that the artist was doing groundbreaking work in vertical lines with this piece. It recently sold for $40 million. Now let me just tell you, if you have a lot of money to spare, you're looking for something like this, I will go home and draw the crap out of some vertical lines for you. (laughs) And I will give you an 80% discount. (laughs) And you you will enjoy. Now, here's the thing about about all of this, uh, these, these pieces of art. I'm not hating on art, by the way. I'm not hating on art. All right, there's some good art out there. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But the people who purchase these unimaginably expensive pieces of artwork, including stupid banana, the people, they, they're not paying with everything that they have. Chances are, relatively speaking, people buy really expensive pieces of artwork, chances are it's, relatively speaking, a smaller part of their net worth. Now on the 4th of July, today, one of the things that we celebrate and remember are people who 250 years ago went and were willing to pay with everything. You go back to the Revolutionary War and for a cause greater than themselves, this concept of freedom or liberation, that's a thread that has traced through the history of our country as something we value and prize. You fast forward several decades to the Civil War, as tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people went again to fight for something bigger than themselves. Recently, a friend lent me the series Band of Brothers that I watched through. It followed one of the airborne uh, uh, divisions during World War II. I got a photo here from, from D-Day as people were offloading on the northern shores of Europe and others being dropped in by planes fighting a peculiar kind of darkness that they didn't want to spread. Again, fighting for something bigger than themselves, willing to pay the ultimate cost, you could say. What's interesting is during one of the interviews during Band of Brothers, there was one particular gentleman who shared that his small town, there were a couple of men who were disqualified from being able to join the force, being able to to, to join the fight, for whatever the reason, I don't remember. 
they ended up taking their lives. They would rather do that than to not be able to fight. He went on to comment, it was such a different time. Can you think of something in your world that you'd be willing to give everything for? Is there something you would joyfully give your home, that you would joyfully give whatever it is that you own, that even your family or your, your friends, your kids? It's a hard and deep question. And yet that's the, the question that Jesus taps into today as we continue through the parables of Jesus this summer. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter 13, verse 34. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is where we're at. If you have your own Bible, I encourage you to open there. Last time, I was joking with Gary this week, last time he had me preach two chapters. Today I get to preach three verses. And so, bit of a different pace than what we're used to, than, than, than what I'm used to. But nonetheless, uh, turn there. It's the beginning of the New Testament. If you get to a book that ends in ayah, you have to keep going, all right? Eventually you hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. While you do that, I'm gonna pray. Lord, we give thanks this morning, God, for, uh, for the people who are able to join. Lord, I praise you for the technology that allows those to, to come in online. I praise you, Lord, for the amount of faces that I get to look out upon this morning here. Lord, as our, as our world slowly, again, turns back to some normalcy. And so, God, we just pray as we're here that you'd eliminate distractions, that, Lord, that you would bring clarity and humility to our own hearts as we seek what it is that you have for us today. Would you challenge us, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read after I move over my little artwork pieces. There was a lot of different artwork. All right. Matthew 13. Jesus shares, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field again. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, a few things in the way of disclaimer. One, when it comes to parables, I want to encourage us. It's very easy whenever, God, whenever anyone uses an analogy for us to get obsessed with the nooks and crannies of a, of a given analogy. As we go through the parables this summer, I encourage you to just think, what is the big point that's trying to be made here? And, and to not get lost perhaps in the weeds, so to speak. I'll, I'll come back to that with this one. J just as an example, Jesus refers to himself as a shepherd and to us as his sheep. Do you know what shepherds did to their sheep? They ate them. It's not the analogy he was making. Every analogy breaks down somewhere, okay? He was talking about protection and care, on and on. So, as we look at parables, just to keep that in mind, okay? What is the big point that they're making? A second thing I wanna offer is a definition. Kingdom of heaven is used twice here. That's really important. Kingdom of heaven is synonymous with kingdom of God. 
and Jews at the time, even many today, Messianic Jews today, whom, whom I've encountered, will not write the word God with, with the O. They'll actually put a dash through it. They'll avoid saying the word as a, as a, as a means of reverence. And, and so often a phrase that includes the word God would be replaced with another word, in this particular case, kingdom of heaven. So they, they are synonymous. Matthew was written to a primarily Jewish audience. And so it makes sense that we would see him use the words kingdom of heaven heaven. The other thing about kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is as we think about citizenship language used elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly Paul and Philippians, that to enter the kingdom of heaven, that to join in and participate in the kingdom of heaven, we do that as Christians by entrusting ourselves to Jesus. It's all about what he does, not about what we can do. So when we think about entering the kingdom, again, for many people, a lot of different commentators, even the concept of salvation or encountering Jesus and trusting yourself to Jesus be used interchangeably with entering the kingdom. And I'm gonna use those interchangeably today, just being very upfront with that. Finally, I'm gonna reread this briefly and give just a little bit of historical backdrop. And then I have a few points for us. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and he buys it. In our country, they would say possession is how many tenths of the law? Nine tenths of the law. In Jewish culture, historians would say possession was 10 tenths of the law. Meaning if he found it, he could keep it. He was not morally obligated to do anything with it. Some people look at this and say, man, Jesus, are you saying I can take a metal detector and go on so-and-so's land and just have fun with it? No. Again, big point. Don't get lost in the weeds. But nonetheless, what he does do is actually go and give this person the opportunity, if it was his land, to go and to grab the treasure. The truth of the matter and the historical backdrop for this parable is that because of hostility and wars and battles and just bad people generally coming through often and banks not being what they are today, when you had something valuable, you buried it. And sometimes you had to move, sometimes you forgot. Chances are whoever owned the land, wouldn't have, uh, it, it, it wouldn't have been theirs. All right, just in the way of backdrop. Secondly, final thing for backdrop is it says a merchant in the search of fine pearls. Now, pearls are valuable today. But with the equipment and the technology that pearl divers and others have today, it's not nearly as dangerous or costly to find pearls to seek them out as it was back then. People died looking for pearls. And so, again, just we have to let that kind of hang in the background. But with that, we're going to jump in. I have... Three points for us this morning as we think through uh, the value that Jesus is trying to ascribe to the kingdom of heaven, the, the worth, the worthiness, uh, the cost. And one of the first things I want to point out is that Jesus gives two scenarios that are different and yet the same. I want to point out, how are they different and how are they the same? Because we get to pull something out of both of those. First, how are they different? The first example is someone who happens to find something in a field. The second example is someone who is in search of fine pearls. These are two different scenarios. 
to different kinds of encounters. And the first thing I want to point out is, is that it doesn't matter how you end up meeting or encountering Jesus. It doesn't matter how you end up meeting or encountering the kingdom. What matters ultimately is how you respond. I read a book a number of years ago in which some of you, if you're a heavy reader, you know what I'm saying? The first chapter, two chapters was really good and then it was just terrible after that. And so I've gotten to a point in my life where I just, I just stop reading. Like I'll skim another chapter and it's like, no, there's not enough time to, to, to do this. Some of you are those allegiant folks. You gotta read it just to say you read the whole thing. But anyway, the very first chapter was all about salvation encounters in the Bible. He's pointing out, the author, all the different encounters that Jesus had with different people and just the very demographics, the varied responses, and the very language that Jesus uses in each of these with respect to, again, salvation, discipleship, following him. As you look through scripture, we see an example of a rich man who approaches Jesus. He wants eternal life. Jesus says, sell everything you own, follow me, and he walks away sad. It's not how you meet Jesus, but how you respond. We see a tax collector up in a tree as Jesus passes away. Jesus goes up to this hated tax collector and says, come down, you're dining with me. He goes on with a changed heart to repay the people he had swindled. It's not how you meet him, but how you respond. John chapter eight, a woman is caught in adultery, dragged to the feet of Jesus in front of the religious elite. I doubt she woke up that morning picturing that being her afternoon scenario. And yet after speaking to the religious leaders and saying, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. As they dropped the stones and walked away, he got down and he said, have they condemned you? Nor do I. Get up and sin no more. It's not how you happen to encounter, but how you respond. Finally, when Jesus goes to the cross, he hangs there with a criminal on either side, two people that deserve to be there when he didn't. And while one is just rebuking Jesus and giving him a hard time, the other says, this man doesn't deserve this. We do. And he just humbly asks Jesus, will you remember me? To which Jesus replies, today you will be with me in paradise. All of these people met Jesus under radically different circumstances. It wasn't a matter of how they came to encounter him, but again, how they would respond let me just encourage for believers, for Christians, we get so hung up on wanting to design the perfect encounter for the non-Christian friend. We need to have the perfect set of answers. They need to see the perfect video. They need to read through the prescribed book. We overthink very easily. We overthink introducing people to Jesus and letting Jesus, the one that, the, the Jesus they meet, do the majority of the work. I could get into an argument, I could, I could try to discuss with you and convince you that Serena Williams is a fantastic tennis player, one of the best. I could have a conversation and talk about how Wayne Gretzky was the best hockey player or Michael Jordan, the best basketball player. Or I could go to YouTube, pull up some highlight reels and let you watch. Sometimes we're a little bit too obsessed with the encounter instead of letting Jesus do the work. For the unbeliever, for someone who's here, a friend brought you here, you're exploring, you don't know what all this Jesus and church stuff is about. All of these people that eyewitnesses report got to meet Jesus. Jesus met them differently where they were. In pain and discomfort, in the highs and the lows, and joy, grief, doubt amongst difficulties. 
The question becomes, how do we respond? And well, as we read this parable, we see how the man here responds. What did he do? Verse 44, in his joy, he goes out, sells everything he has and buys a field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. Point number two, the kingdom comes at a cost. Now, for those of you who's kind of like earning salvation, works righteousness, and tennis pop up, it's not, it's not what I'm saying. Jesus has given us a picture of the things we have to let go of in order that we can hold on to him. Luke 14. Now great crowds were traveling with him, with Jesus. So he turned and he said to them, I just got to point out to you, this is anti-health and wealth. This is anti-prosperity preaching. This is anti-megachurch mindset. Jesus saw great crowds traveling with him for all sorts of different reasons. Some of them genuinely had surrendered their lives to him. Many of them just saw the miracles. Many of them saw the food and they just wanted in on the action or they wanted to get some sort of benefit. And so when he saw great crowds, he didn't turn around and appease them. He didn't turn around and tickle their ears. He didn't turn around and give them a very convenient and comfortable life style that comes along with Jesus, what does he say? Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you don't hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now we know based on his teaching elsewhere that Jesus is using hyperbole here. He doesn't want you to hate your parents. He's making a drastic claim about how much we prize and treasure Jesus in comparison with the world. Verse 28, for which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. The kingdom comes at a cost. Have you counted it? Verse 29, otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying this man started to build and was unable to finish. Verse 31, or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for peace. In the same way, Every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciples. I imagine the big crowd grew smaller. I was listening, I was watching cable news once upon a time. This was years ago now. And they, they brought on a megachurch pastor, preacher, many of us will be familiar, his name's Joel Osteen. They brought him on and they were interviewing him. And at one point in the interview, he got a hard question and his response, I'll never forget it, was, I don't like to talk about sin when I preach. He went on to explain that it's not something people are comfortable with, it's not something that people like. And he was very blatant. Secular news channel, it's not something I like to talk about. Why? Because talking about the problems in our world scares people away. You know who talked about sin? Jesus. Jesus really wanted to see who were the ones who had actually counted the cost. Because commitment always comes with a cost. Just think about this. If you're a football linebacker, 
They're the big guys who also loves to distance run. You cannot be the best marathoner and the best linebacker at the same time. There's not enough calories for that to be the case. It's not gonna happen. You think about intimate relationships, covenant relationships, marriages. When I commit to my wife, it requires me to sacrifice. It requires, it requires the cost of seeking intimacy out elsewhere. Every commitment comes with a cost. Every ultimate commitment comes with a sacrifice. Jesus is making it very clear that in order to cling to him, there's things in our world we gotta be willing to let go of. One of my favorite examples in history is Augustine. It's got a photo up here. Now Augustine's one of the most influential, if not what many church historians will call the most influential thinker in the history of the church, short of the apostles. And when the reformers broke away from the Catholic church in the 16th century, who did they cite a whole bunch? They went and they referenced Augustine. When the Catholic church fought back and said, no, you're wrong, who did they cite? Augustine. Everybody uses this guy in the Western church. If you grew up in a Western church, chances are a lot of what you think about God has been shaped by some of his ideas. Very smart, very intellectual guy. He wrote more books than most of us will ever read, myself included. But his journey to faith has always astounded me because he spent a giant chunk of his life antagonistic towards the Christian church. Too smart for his own good. And so he bounced from philosophy to philosophy looking for an explanation of the world. He's trying to understand particularly the existence of good and evil. And along the way, he found out that he really liked sexual pleasure. And he indulged in it all the time. And at, at one point, getting a young, a, a young woman pregnant and having a child. And at some point in his life, through exposure to people and encounters that he had, he heard uh, this really good speaker, Ambrose, local bishop, he heard him speak. And through the prayers of his mother, I would have to say as well, Augustine came to the realization that there isn't a worldview that better explains the reality we live in than Christianity. There just isn't one. But here's the problem. He admitted that was true, but he wasn't ready to surrender. Here's what I appreciate about the honesty of Augustine. He writes, I had now found the priceless pearl and I ought to have sold all that I had and bought it, yet I hesitated. And he goes on to talk about how he had two wills struggling within him, one drawing him to God's love that would satisfy and vanquish him, the self-centered him. And on the other hand, another will pulling him in his own lust that pleased and flattered him. And he felt this struggle between the two. At one point in, his, in confessions, his spiritual autobiography, he said he cried out to God and he said, Lord, give me chastity. Just don't give it to me yet. <laughs> he didn't want to give that up because he, he knew that was the thing he'd have to let go of in order to cling to Jesus. It's like, for those of you who, who are familiar, Meredith is a character in this sitcom called The Office. At one point, they're doing New Year's resolutions, and she says, in one year, I want to be six months sober. <laughs> I want it, but just not yet, because I kind of want this a little bit more. And so Augustine, at one point later, would hear the voices of children crying out and 
As he reports it, he heard the words, open it, open it, open it, read it. And he, he, he fled and grabbed the nearest Bible he could find and he did the whole open it test, which we don't recommend, but he did it. And he looked at Romans 3, 13, 13, 13, and there it was. The first verse he laid upon was a call out of sexual morality. In that moment, as one church historian puts it, he gave himself to Jesus, all of himself. Finally willing to let go of that thing so that he can cling to God. The kingdom comes at a cost. Commitment comes with a cost. And Jesus makes it clear. This isn't about earning salvation, but again, letting go of the world so that you can cling to Jesus. Point number three. I'm gonna read them again so I can say I read my whole section three times. Read the whole passage three times. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied, then in his joy. Can we just key in on that word, joy? He goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. The action of selling it all and purchasing the treasure. The people who get the kingdom are the people who want it more than anything else. People who get the kingdom are the ones who want it more than anything else. Jesus is not interested in competing with fame or fortune. Jesus is not interested in competing with friendships or followings or even family. And for those who realize what they have when they encounter Jesus, the kingdom is worth everything. Are we undistracted enough, church, to realize what we have? John Calvin writes, we are so captivated by the allurements of the world that our eternal life fades from our view. And in consequence of our carnality, the spiritual graces of God are far from being held by us in the estimation which they deserve. Matthew Henry writes, those who discern this treasure in the field and value it right, will never be at ease until they have made it their own on any terms. The Apostle Paul, the one who persecuted Christians, who had a life-changing encounter with Jesus that completely changed the way he saw God and the world and his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That Paul, in a letter to Philippians, writes, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss. That's his prestige and his power. The authority that had, and the reverence that was ascribed to him. He lost it all in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things. And consider them as dung. That's right kids. The Bible just used the poop word. <laughs> Throwing that out there. So that I may gain Christ. Let me say that again. I've suffered the loss of all things. And consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Our problem is that when Jesus says let go so that we can receive. When Jesus says leave that and follow me. You think about the young uh, rich man who came to Jesus and Jesus said you got to sell everything and come. Jesus doesn't say that to everyone by the way. You look at all the different encounters. Some people sell some possessions. Some people don't sell any possessions. Some people Jesus says sell it all. 
because it's about what's going on in the heart. But you could imagine that man hearing, wait a second, in our world, in our current evangelical culture, wait a second, sell it all and then come follow. He doesn't realize I can get a trailer, put it all in it and bring it along with me. Like I follow him with that, couldn't I? So we pack up the trailer, we bring it along. We try to allow the distractions of our world, the things that compete for our greatest affection and hope to coexist with Jesus. And it doesn't work and Jesus doesn't allow it. Now this week for me, as I was reflecting on this and some uh, other work doing for Bible study, I thought about what this means, not just for me, but for my kids. In Deuteronomy 7, God, the people are about to enter the promised land. God gives three instructions. The first one being, you're going to drive out the people. You're going to drive them out. Israel was to be a set apart and holy nation. They were to drive out the people so that they would not be distracted by the idol worship, by the child sacrifice, by the sexual practices of, this, of the Canaanite people. They were to drive them out. And what we know is that while they drove some of them out, many were allowed to remain. What we see in the opening chapters of Judges is that Joshua's generation, the generation who had driven some, but not all, they obeyed and they were faithful. And then they died and their kids didn't know God. How does a generation grow up watching their parents be faithful and obedient and not know God? because they grew up with all the distractions. Do we take the distractions seriously? As I think about this for me, as faithful as I strive to be, and as a parent, I will always fall short in some way. How comfortable am I with the worship of success in my household? How comfortable are we with the worship of fame or influence, with the worship of pride? wealth, with a worship of sex and sexuality, with a worship of security and stability? How okay are we with these worships competing and coexisting with our worship of Jesus? And do we truly treasure him or are we too busy holding on to some of these things? Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes against, in his book, Cost of Discipleship, he comes against this idea of cheap grace. The kind of grace that says, hey, you can have Jesus in eternal life, but we'll just tack it on to the rest of your life. Nothing has to change. He writes this. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the one, the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. As in we shouldn't treat it cheaply. 
Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Jesus calls us to let go of our world so that we can hold on to him and he's worth it. It's worth it. Why is he worth it? Why is the kingdom worthy of giving up whatever it takes in order to pursue it? Because unlike the one who happened to stumble upon a treasure in a field, Jesus knew and saw before the foundations of the world, his people. He planned and went to the cross. He died the sinner's death after living the life that we could not deserve. He hung on the cross and during a brutal execution to only on the third day rise in victory over Satan's sin and death so that by entrusting our lives to him, we can participate in that victory. He did all of that for you and for me, which is why there's no cost too great because he was willing to pay the greatest possible cost. He's worth it. He's worthy. That's why today, the first Sunday of the month, we do something special and unique to remember him. Don't open your communion cups yet. We do something to, com I would say commemorate, to, to think and reflect upon the price paid for freedom. The 4th of July honors and commemorates people who gave it all for a kind of freedom. And, and when we take communion together, we're gonna think and reflect on what it took to purchase absolute ultimate freedom. And so in a moment, I'm gonna come back and we're gonna take the bread and the juice together. But while we worship, I encourage you to think and reflect about that. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worthy. You think about the parables, the one willing to give it all, to go, to do whatever it takes. Is there something in your world that you've been clinging to? That to be honest, Jesus has said, drop it and come and follow me. And maybe you've dropped it, but you keep looking back. Maybe you've dropped it and picked it up a few times. Maybe you've never dropped it at all. Go to him now. Reflect on that.